From Beacon Hill to the world of college sports, Governor Charlie Baker and the NCAA announce he'll take over the collegiate sports organization after he leaves the governor's post early next year. It's Thursday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a mechanical problem with a Russian spacecraft docked at the International Space Station leads to uncertainty about how two cosmonauts and a U.S. astronaut will return home. And tens of thousands of nurses working for Britain's National Health Service walked off the job today. It's the biggest strike in the health service's history. We regularly work over hours with caseloads that are unsafe and too big to manage, so it's just an accident waiting to happen. Plus, Bob Mondello reviews the sequel to the biggest box office hit of all time, Avatar. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Fears that the Fed's continued interest rate hikes will tip the U.S. economy into a recession are evident in today's steep decline in U.S. stocks. Major market indices are reflecting losses ranging from 2 to more than 3 percent. Inflation slowed, but not enough yet to halt the rate hikes designed to counter soaring prices. NPR's Alina Selyuk says that last month, retail sales took a hit, declining six-tenths of a percent. People spent less on cars and gas, clothes and sporting goods, furniture and electronics. Some of this has to do with a few of these prices actually declining and stores pushing big discounts as holiday shopping kicked into gear. And many people did tighten their shopping budgets in response to inflation, scaling back their discretionary purchases as they kept spending more at grocery stores. NPR's Alina Sullier reporting, well, in a sign that the jobs market remains strong, the government reports that last week fewer Americans filed for unemployment insurance. Claims fell by 20,000 to 211,000 for the week ending December 10th. Public health officials are trying to get ahead of an expected surge in COVID cases this winter. Lake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports the Biden administration is urging states to step up testing and vaccination. It's not just making vaccines available, but reminding people why they're important. Tennessee just launched a campaign with NFL players who will hold town halls like three-time pro bowler Javon Curse. It's kind of like me playing football without wearing a helmet. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had my share of injuries, but if I didn't wear a helmet and pads, those injuries would have been a lot worse. Tennessee health officials say they're concerned that less than 5% of residents have received the updated booster. The Biden administration is urging governors to reestablish mobile vaccination sites and resume pop-up testing. The White House is also offering free at-home rapid tests again. Each household can order up to four that will arrive by mail. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Harvard has named its next president, Claudine Gay. Remember station GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapaza has details. Claudine Gay is a social scientist who studies democracy and political participation. She's also the university's current dean of faculty of arts and sciences. And as the daughter of Haitian immigrants, she'll be the first black person to lead the country's oldest college. In a statement, presidential search committee chair Penny Pritzker says Gay is, quote, a remarkable leader, profoundly devoted to sustaining and enhancing Harvard's academic excellence. She'll take over as Harvard's 30th president in July. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. The Dow closes down 764 points, more than 2%, ending the day at 33,202. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Outgoing Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has been named the next president of the NCAA. That's the organization that oversees college sports. Baker says he was first approached about the job a couple of months ago. He says college athletics give opportunity and help people learn. It is through sports that so many people find themselves and develop a lot of the skills and capabilities that translate through the rest of their lives. Baker will take over in March. Members of Baker's team that helped him transition into the governor's office are voicing their support for their former boss and his next career move. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more from two former members of Baker's team. MASH GOP activist and writer Ed Lyons says he couldn't be more excited for the governor. I've never met a sports fan as big as Charlie Baker in my entire life. I think he wants to see education be better. He's done a lot with vocational tech and other things, so I think he's perfect for this role. I'm so happy for him. Lyons was on Baker's Better Government Committee in 2014. He served with Codman Square Health Center founder Bill Walzak, who was on Baker's Health Committee. I hope he can make sure that the student-athletes are treated well. I have a lot of confidence in him. I know that he's a big uh, sports fan and uh, that he's also a decent person. So I hope it uh, works out for his best and for uh, the country's best. Baker will take on the new role in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is proposing major changes to the way the city creates affordable housing. She unveiled a plan today to require developments to increase the number of income-restricted units they build from 13 percent to 20 percent of the development. The mayor also wants to raise the fee commercial developers pay to fund affordable housing and job training and make smaller developments subject to the fee. The changes are subject to votes by other city boards. Taking a look at the forecast, tonight will be rainy. We'll have a low around 40, and it looks like there will be some light snow in Worcester County, heavier snow in the far western part of the state. That snow will continue in western Mass tomorrow with rain over most of the rest of the state and temps in the low to mid-40s. And it'll range from breezy to downright windy tomorrow. Saturday, the rain should stop by sometime in the morning, making way for a cloudy day. The high will be around 43 degrees Saturday. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This show starts at 6 minutes and 30 seconds past the hour, exactly. And we measure everything we say and record to the hundredths of the second. Knowing the time is what keeps this show running. And it's the same time you see on watches, phones, and walls. But time has another side to it, one that the clocks don't show. As part of our series, Finding Time, NPR's Jeff Brumfield went on a quest to uncover the truth about time. Official time is kept at a government laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. It seemed like kind of a logical place to go learn about time. I was supposed to show up at 9 sharp. Turn right onto Rayleigh Road. Well, I'm just arriving and they have a clock out front and I can see I'm about seven minutes late. I rushed across the campus of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, fumbling with my recording gear. Sorry, just give me one more sec. And arrived at a lab run by a guy named Jeff Sherman. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry I'm running late. We, we only measure the nanoseconds. It's okay. <laughs> Sherman takes me straight into a room where they measure the time. 
This lab is actually owned by the Department of Commerce, which he says makes sense when you think about it, because time is a commodity. No one disagrees that if you're measuring out gold, you're going to do so with the best possible scale, the best possible balance. You're going to care about micrograms. Well, time, in a sense, is the least renewable resource there is, at least the present moment. Once you experience, you're never getting back. There are three big boxes in here, each of which holds a high-precision atomic clock. This one's called George, Fiona, El Elvis. They all have quirks and personalities. And when they fail at 2 a.m., you want to have a little bit of compassion for them, so you give them names. We walk over to the big gray box marked Elvis. So this thing is not a clock. This is a chicken egg incubator that's been repurposed, repainted, and tripled in price and sold to us. The incubators are used to keep the delicate atomic machinery at just the right temperature. Except today, Elvis is broken. You think it's got a small air leak, and one of these days we're going to get around to fixing it. But in the meantime, I don't mind pulling the doors off. We open Elvis, and inside is another box with a tube sticking out the bottom. And the interesting bit is if you lean down and look that away, you should see a pink glow uh -huh. through a little hole. Oh, yeah. The glow comes from atoms of hydrogen. The atomic clock works by exciting hydrogen and then measuring the light waves that come off the atoms. Sherman says think of it as striking an atomic tuning fork. It's a tone of light, and then this is an instrument that tries to sample, tries to listen to a little bit of that light and count the cycles of oscillation in that light. Those light cycles are the tick of this clock. There are 21 clocks like Elvis spread across the campus, and they're all used to set America's time. It's an incredible system that's accurate to better than a trillionth of a second. But here's the thing. You've got to keep counting all those little trillionth seconds. If you stop, if you blink, you don't know the time anymore. In exchange for this wonderful idea, you're now beholden to count forever and not lose track. This feels like the most Sisyphean job, the most sort of like rolling the ball up the hill, forever and ever job I've ever heard. You, you said it, brother. <laughs> so this is time. 21 government atomic clocks counting to infinity in tiny, precise increments. And we all look at our watches and cell phones, and we know exactly what time it is, right? Well, as it turns out, maybe not. A lot of us grow up being fed the idea of time as absolute. Shonda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical physicist at the University of New Hampshire. She says this absolute ticking time is only what the government wants you to think time is because it keeps us all in line. Think about it. The official time runs our lives, it says, when planes take off and land. When does the market open? When does the market close? Can I make that trade right now? Are my kids at school on time? Am I late to work? Am I late to the lab where they keep track of the time? Governments around the world aren't giving us the time to be nice. It's to increase efficiency. This is about the economy. Yeah, capitalism sucks. And I think like I think a lot of a lot of people's relationship to why time is like not cool is structured by the resource pressures that we feel. Okay, so the time I just saw in the lab, the one you see on your cell phone, that's just counting, a social construct. It's not true time. So what is? I ask Prescott Weinstein. Time is not an absolute, and that's radical. She's not talking about time zones. She means time itself changes depending on where you are in space. Space and time are tied together, and space-time can bend. It can curve. The way to think about it 
is that that curvature is stretching out time. As time stretches, it slows. The best-known force that stretches time is gravity. So take people on Earth and compare them to people aboard the space station. The gravitational field of the International Space Station is much weaker than the gravitational field here on Earth. So we are feeling stronger gravity on Earth. So for us here on Earth, time is flowing differently. These effects are minuscule compared to a human lifespan, but get further from Earth and time gets really freaky. Katie Mack is an astrophysicist at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Canada. She says that the universe is expanding from the Big Bang, and that expansion is stretching time too. When you see things in the really, really distant universe, because of the expansion of the universe, it takes longer for things to happen. Compare, for example, two identical stars that explode, one nearby and one that blows up far away. If we see a star exploding and that star takes about 10 days to go from the sort of brightest part of the explosion to, to dim again, if we look at it in the very distant universe, it might take 20 or 30 days. Again, that faraway star isn't exploding more slowly. Time is ticking more slowly, at least from our perspective. In fact, when Mac looks at really big events in the universe, like the Big Bang, time becomes so twisted she doesn't even bother with it. We don't really use time as the marker for the passage of time, if you see what I mean. No, I don't. And I still don't know what time is. And then Mac drops a real time bomb. She tells me that when she talks to scientists who study the most fundamental particles in the universe, they tell her that they suspect time might be an illusion, a side effect of something else that's going on in the cosmos. And it is a little bit maddening because you're just trying to have a conversation. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, space and time are, are you know, probably not real. And you're like, wait, what, what is then actually? So I can't tell you what time is because I'm not even really sure what's real anymore. Okay, deep breaths, back to NIST, that government lab where the clocks keep ticking. Tara Fortier is another physicist. She reassures me that time actually exists. I'd say time feels pretty real whenever I look in the mirror. <laughs> whenever I get a new passport photo, time feels very real to me. And look, she gets it. They all do. All they're doing is counting. True time, whatever it is, isn't on a clock. And her personal time reflects that. Every night before bed... She meditates. And those 10 minutes every night that I meditate before sleep are very slow. Just sitting and listening and feeling my body helps me enormously. And how do you know when you're done? Do you have a timer? I have a timer that's attached to the NIST atomic clock. <laughs> Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Busted. <laughs> NASA and Russian space managers are scrambling to understand the cause of a major leak at the International Space Station. Yesterday, a Russian capsule docked to the station spewed coolant uncontrollably for hours. While NASA says the crew is safe for now, the incident raises questions about the safety of the seven people on board. For member station WMFE, Brendan Byrne explains. Russian cosmonauts Sergei Prokopia and Dmitry Patelin were inside the station's airlock about to begin a spacewalk, but then warnings that the Soyuz capsule was jetting liquid into space. The cause uh, of that leak of coolant, not known at this point. The effect, not yet known at this point. 
Ground teams canceled the spacewalk. While the crew was safe, the sight of a leaking spacecraft was unsettling, says Terry Vertz, a retired NASA astronaut who flew to the station in a Soyuz capsule in 2014. When you see it leaking fluid like that, you know something very, very bad is happening. That Soyuz spacecraft transported the cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut to the ISS in September. It's their planned ride home in March, but in the short term, Marcia Smith with Space Policy Online says it's also a key piece of safety hardware, like a lifeboat. So you have to have a way to get off the space station if there's an emergency. It's unknown if they'll be able to use this capsule to eventually return to Earth. Russia may need to launch an uncrewed replacement vehicle. There has been pretty much an ironclad rule since the space station got up there that you can only have as many people on board the space station at any one time as you have lifeboats to get them off. There are four other astronauts on the ISS that arrived in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, which was unaffected by the coolant leak and can still serve as a lifeboat for that crew. But as NASA and Russia's space agency work to resolve the issue, retired astronaut Terry Vertz is urging caution. When investigating a leak on another Soyuz spacecraft in 2018, Russia blamed NASA astronauts and even alleged sabotage by a U.S. crew member. The origin of that leak was never revealed. And with the Russia war in Ukraine, diplomatic tensions remain high. So I really hope they do the right thing, but I think we should not be putting ourselves in this position where we have to depend on them to do the right thing. And so it's a, it's a serious problem on a technical level and also on a, on a much bigger picture level also. And that spacewalk, which has been delayed twice, will have to wait as teams on the ground and at the station work to figure out what caused the leak in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, Governor Charlie Baker will move into the world of college sports when he leaves Beacon Hill early next year. He's going to lead the NCAA. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. Stocks finished the day on a downward trend. The Dow dipped 2.3%, 764 points, to end the day at 33,202. The S&P fell 2.5% to close out at 3896. And the Nasdaq dropped 3.2%, ending at 10,811. In business news, General Electric's new energy division is planning to open its global headquarters in Kendall Square, Cambridge, within two years. GE Vernova will have up to 200 employees working in a renovated building on Charles Street. The company says it selected Cambridge for its dynamic environment of education, talent, and innovation. General Electric has already scaled back its corporate headquarters in Boston's Fort Point Channel as the company has downsized. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It'll be rainy overnight tonight and through the day tomorrow with light snow in central Mass and more snow in the western part of the state into tomorrow. The low tonight will be around 40. Temps will rise to the mid-40s tomorrow. The rain will clear out Saturday for a cloudy day with temperatures in the low 40s. Sunny Sunday looks sunny. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work. At jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has lined up a new job for when he leaves office next month. The 66-year-old Republican has been named the next president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, starting in March. Joining us now is WBUR's Steve Brown, who has covered Baker for the last eight years. Hi, Steve. Hi there, Lynn. So this seems like quite a change for Baker going from the governor's office to college sports. Were you surprised? Uh, No, not really. You know, Charlie Baker is a sports guy. He loves to talk about it whenever he can. He he often refers to things that he's heard on sports radio. Uh, He played college basketball at Harvard, although he admits he was not a stellar athlete. Still, he did eventually make uh, the varsity team, and it's obvious that he is passionate about sports. Okay, but why did the NCAA pick Baker, do you think? Yeah, the organization could use some Someone with Baker's political connections and savvy. Uh, It'll likely need help in Congress to get an exemption from antitrust laws. And the NCAA is also facing other thorny issues, like whether student-athletes should be paid to play, as well as the right to use their names and images. Uh, Some think Baker may just be the guy to help. Baylor University President Linda Livingstone is the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors. She said uh, this afternoon that it's hard to imagine a better fit than Baker. Our mission at the NCAA is to provide student athletes with a fair, inclusive, and fulfilling environment in which to study, practice, and compete. So they can not only have a successful career in college, but can go on to have a major impact in their lives after college. Under Governor Baker's leadership, I have no doubt that we will make tremendous strides in that mission and it will have an enormous impact on our student-athletes. Now, Livingstone noted that Baker's ability to handle complex issues and build consensus, he's a moderate who has worked with both Republicans and Democrats alike. And what is the governor saying about his new job? Yeah, he, he said he's not exactly what you would call a traditional candidate for this, uh, but he also seems excited about the opportunity. He said he believes that sports have a tremendous power to bring people together. You you just see it over and over again, the way in which athletics uh, can transcend so many other divisions. And and I really do believe that um, 
we are at a bit of a pivotal period for uh, the NCAA. And, and I really do think that the enthusiasm, the life and professional experiences I've had, uh, the people I've gotten to know, the relationships I have uh, can be a big part of helping all the folks involved in the NCAA, wherever they fit in that very significant uh, organization, uh, benefit from what we can put together going forward if we work together. Still, Baker wouldn't talk about any specific plans about what he'll do in this new role. Uh, he says he first needs to meet with people and hear what they have to say. And what kind of reaction have you been hearing to his announcement? Well, Baker's successor, Attorney General Mara Healy, tweeted a photo of the two of them playing a game of horse several years ago. Uh, she offered her congratulations and said that she knows that he knows the importance of athletics can play. Uh, now, our colleague Walt Wuthman uh, talked with Smith College sports economics professor Andrew Zimbalis. Zimbalis said that if Charlie Baker thinks it's been tough to govern Massachusetts, wait until he tries to oversee college sports. The NCAA job that he's taking is unbelievably challenging. The NCAA is falling apart, and I think the obvious reason why they have selected him is because they want a politician who will be able to work the scenes in Congress, and uh, from the NCAA perspective, hopefully, they would like to get an antitrust exemption for the NCAA. So it sounds like uh, Baker has his work cut out for him, but I'm sure he'll be glad he won't have to answer any more questions about the MBTA. I'm sure. And uh, I would imagine leaving the governor's office, going into a position like this, he's probably looking at a, a fairly sizable pay increase. What do you know about that? Yeah, the the NCAA didn't disclose what his salary is, but it will surely be a big bump from what he's earning now. He, he makes $185,000 a year as governor. Uh, but the guy that Baker is replacing earned almost $3 million in 2020. So that's a big difference. Wow. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> Thank you very much, WBUR's Steve Brown. You're quite welcome, Lynn. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin don't just appear. Many are generated or mined by companies using racks and racks of custom-purposed computers. While the world of digital currency is struggling with the so-called crypto winter, crypto miners are facing problems of their own. Vaughn Golden of member station WSKG reports. A few years ago, cryptocurrency mining operations were a golden goose. Firms flocked to places like Messina, New York, to mine Bitcoin, promising to bring with them jobs and economic development. Tina Barksdale, a spokesperson for one such facility, gave a tour to North Country Public Radio in 2018. From being just Messina, New York, to being a cryptocurrency sort of Silicon Valley. But of course, it all depends on the power. The computers used to generate Bitcoin often use a ton of energy. While Messina gets a good portion of its energy from relatively cheap hydropower, other miners aren't so lucky. Chris Brendler is a senior analyst at DA Davidson. Really, the only cost they have that's purely raw material cost is electricity. He says all crypto miners are different in how they pay for energy. Some have contracts with utilities, others generate their own energy. But for those exposed to rising natural gas prices, profit margins are being squeezed. This is a very simple model. If you're not covering electricity costs, you shut down the mining operation. And if miners aren't mining and don't have another source of revenue, they can go bankrupt. Some have. This is all coupled by other factors, too. There's still a lot of miners competing to generate these cryptocurrencies. At the same time, prices are relatively low, meaning the same costs with a lower reward. 
One other challenge that's arisen is public opposition to potential environmental impacts of mining. New York State, for example, just enacted a two-year ban on refiring fossil fuel burning plants for mining out of concern it will increase the state's carbon emissions. Brendler says energy costs and competition are bigger concerns than new environmental regulation, though. It's not going away as an issue. I don't see it as a high risk to you know actual operations in the near term, but it's not zero. Kyle Schneps is public policy director at Foundry USA, which coordinates a network of miners. His company has been around for a few years, and he says they prepared for this so-called crypto winter. Companies that have been around for a while are used to the cyclical nature of Bitcoin pricing and crypto pricing. And so most people are, instead of getting over leveraged during good times, they are planning for the down cycle during those times. Now, Foundry is investing in mining. The downturn is making it cheaper to invest now in the hopes things rebound. Other firms are too. Goldman Sachs recently said it plans to invest millions in low-cost crypto assets. Brenler, the analyst, says he sees this moment as a sort of cleansing of weaker mining firms. We've seen companies struggle, fail, go out of business, get shut down. That's still continuing. And he says while energy prices remain high and crypto winter rages on, less stable mining firms may continue to shut down. For NPR News, I'm Vaughn Golden in Binghamton, New York. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Downtown Crossing Boston, your holiday destination, featuring the Snowflake Crossing Ice Festival, December 16th and 17th, downtownboston.org. A brass band and food stalls decorated like gingerbread houses. Some of the joys that are German Christmas markets this time of year. When it starts to snow and gets cold and dark, these markets lift my mood. A visit to the Charlottenburg Palace Weihnachtsmarkt in Berlin. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon says the U.S. military will expand its training of Ukrainian troops away from the battlefield in Germany, including training in combined arms, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder says the goal is to enable Ukraine to better defend itself from incoming Russian missiles. Combined arms maneuver training is a logical next step in our ongoing training efforts, which began in 2014 to build the Ukrainian armed forces capacity. While there's an understandable focus on the equipment being provided to Ukraine, training is and has been essential to ensuring Ukraine has the skilled forces necessary to better defend themselves. He says the new training will involve about 500 Ukrainians a month, but won't require an increase in U.S. troops to Europe. Meanwhile, Moscow is warning if the U.S. plans to send air defense missiles to Ukraine, it would be a, quote, provocative move that could prompt 
a response from Russia. A judge in Michigan has sentenced three men for their role in a plot to kidnap the state's governor, as Dustin Dwyer of Michigan Radio reports. The three are among 14 people who face charges over the failed scheme. Paul Beller faces a minimum of seven years in prison, while Joseph Morrison and Pete Musico each face a decade or more. At the sentencing hearing for the men, prosecutors played a recorded victim impact statement from the target of the plot, Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Do you want my advice about what to do with men like this? It's simple. Impose a sentence that meets the gravity of the damage they have done to our democracy. Five men have been found guilty so far for their role in the kidnapping plot. Two others pleaded guilty and two were acquitted. For NPR News, I'm Dustin Dwyer in Grand Rapids. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street. The tech-heavy Nasdaq saw some of the biggest losses after the Fed signaled it will need to go higher to tamp down inflation. The Dow lost 764 points, down two and a quarter percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Harvard has introduced its next leader. I'm Claudine Gay, and I'm honored to stand before you as the next president of Harvard University. Gay will become the Ivy League school's 30th president and its first black president when she takes over in July. The daughter of Haitian immigrants says she imagines a future Harvard that's even more connected to the rest of the world. The idea of the ivory tower, that is the past, not the future of academia. We don't exist outside of society, but as part of it. And that means that Harvard has a duty to lean in and engage and to be in service to the world. Gay is currently dean of Harvard's Arts and Sciences Department. She will replace Larry Bacow, who's led the school since 2018 and is retiring. Eversource is forging ahead with plans to build a new electrical substation in East Boston. The utility told its neighbors this week construction will begin next month. The project is controversial. It's ratepayer-funded, and the estimated price tag has ballooned by tens of millions of dollars over the past few years. Eversource says that's because of high inflation and a tight labor market. Environmental advocates also worry the substation could pose health and safety risks to the surrounding community. Senator Ed Markey wants answers from the owners of the Keystone Pipeline following an oil spill in Kansas this month. Markey says the leaked 600,000 gallons of crude represent the country's worst spill in a decade. The Massachusetts senator wants information on dozens of other spills and wants to know how the owners will help impacted landowners. It is 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. This winter, give the gift of art, culture, and community by giving the gift of the Huntington, from gift certificates to custom seat plaques to flexible packages and memberships. There is something for everyone. For gift ideas, visit HuntingtonTheater.org gifts. Rain will move in by about midnight tonight. We'll have a low around 40 degrees. Some parts of Worcester County could see light snow. Then tomorrow looks like a Friday washout, and it'll be windy with gusts of 45 miles per hour or more near the coast. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. Saturday, the wet weather should clear out in the morning. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high around 43. Sunday, the sun should return. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. 
BetterHelp.com/public. This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro, and I'm Juana Summers. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds that more than 8 in 10 Americans believe there is a serious threat to democracy. It's a striking finding, but people don't agree on where that threat is coming from. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been digging into the results. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, Domenico, I mean, 8 in 10 is a lot of people who think that there is a serious threat to democracy. It is. 83% say they believe there's a serious threat. That's the highest Marist has recorded since even right after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. But when we followed up and asked which political party was the biggest threat, you saw there's little agreement. 49% said Republicans, 45% said Democrats. Democrats see that threat coming from the lies that former President Trump has been pushing with baseless claims of a stolen election that have been disproven. But so many conservatives have been convinced of his election lies about voter fraud that again has not been that has been proven not to be widespread. So they think Democrats are the threat and experts will say that this division itself is is a threat and one that plays into the hands of autocratic regimes around the world who have it out for the United States. That said, candidates who pushed election denialism did cost Republicans in swing states in the midterms. Despite a tougher than expected year, Republicans did win the House. So we are headed for an era of divided government in Congress. Despite all of our divisions, ironically, a huge number in this poll did say they want members of Congress to compromise, but they're not confident that they will. What do they want the next Congress to work together on? Yeah, I mean, the top priority remains inflation, uh, followed, by the way, by preserving democracy, which we know they don't agree on the solutions for. And then there's immigration, which has seen a huge surge lately. It's going to be tough to see a lot that they can reach across the aisle on, given just how entrenched conservatives in particular in the House are. But despite all the rancor, this past Congress was actually able to work together on some things like Ukraine aid, some gun control measures, technology manufacturing, and infrastructure. It may be one reason why we saw in the poll the highest percentage of people since 1998 saying this Congress accomplished more than recent Congresses. It was only 24 percent who said that, but still it's higher than we've seen in quite a while. So keeping in mind that theme of divided government that we've been talking about, how did respondents say they view each party and the president? Well, no one really gets great grades in this poll. President Biden has just a 43% approval rating, but the percentage disapproving of the job he's doing is below 50% for the second time only in a year. Uh, only 41% say that they like the GOP. Only 42% say they like the Democratic Party. So not great for either party. But one warning sign, particularly for Democrats, is with Gen Z and millennials, basically everybody under 40 who can vote. They're pretty disaffected with Democrats just as much as they're disaffected with Republicans. Just 41% of them said that they have a favorable view of Democrats. 42% actually said they have a favorable view of Republicans. And one in five said they were unsure of both. And this is the group that voted for Democrats by the widest margin in the midterm. So particularly as they get older, this is a group that could be up for grabs. And it's a real reminder of how Democrats can't take these younger voters for granted. And you mentioned the economy as a top issue for voters, as it was in the midterms. But do we have any clues from the survey on who it's affecting most? Yeah, this was really interesting. Seven in 10 people said now is just not a good time to make a major purchase like buying a car or a household appliance. And and those most likely to say that were people who live in rural areas and voters 77 and older, members of the silent or greatest generation. It's really just a reminder that the economy isn't the same for everyone and people with less, less access to thriving industries or are retired and living on fixed incomes are often hit the hardest. 
NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. Avatar The Way of Water opens this week on close to 54,000 screens worldwide. It's the sequel to the highest grossing film in movie history. And filmmaker James Cameron says he waited 13 years to make it so that film technology could catch up with his vision of the moon Pandora. Here's critic Bob Mondello to tell us without spoilers how that vision plays out. More than a decade has passed since the Navi sent Pandora's invading humans packing, and their world seems to have more or less healed. The rainforests are as lush as you remember, and as filled with digitized wonders. Jake Sully, the first film's hero, having given up his human body for his Avatar one, is now tall, blue, and handsome on a permanent basis, and proud papa to four kids who call him sir and follow his orders. Dad, I'm a warrior like you. I'm supposed to fight. Intermittently. His wife, Neytiri, has to remind him again that they're his family, not his squad. But everything's basically fine until just a few minutes into the movie, they spot what looks like a new star in the heavens and realize that the sky people are back. Now, may I just say right here that I don't much like wearing 3D glasses, but when the sky people lit up the forest as they were landing, and sparks floated persuasively enough out into the auditorium to have me briefly worrying about the hair of the woman sitting in front of me, I decided I was on board. The visuals in this movie are astonishing. Everything you'll have heard and then some, especially when Sully realizes that the humans are after him personally and he and his family join another branch of the Na'vi. A beach-dwelling turquoise clan that spends a good deal of its time underwater. This being submerged part is the technological advance James Cameron was apparently waiting on, and it's plenty dazzling. I mean, he's already made Titanic and the Abyss, so he knows his way around a wading pool. But between the tattooed four-eyed whales and the rideable flying fish, he's arguably treading new water here. Not so much in the plot department, where he's recycling everything from Moby Dick and Finding Nemo to his own greatest hits reel, whole scenes that could have been lifted from Aliens, Terminator, and Titanic. That said, in between the battles and breathtaking visuals, there are clever touches that have nothing to do with images, as when he brings back folks who died in the first Avatar. Sigourney Weaver's scientist, for instance. It's like the entire biosphere of Pandora is aware and capable of this cognitive response. Her spirit now presents as Sully's adopted Navi daughter. So what is it? I feel her, Dad. An environmentally sensitive 14-year-old. I feel who? Awa. Voiced by Sigourney Weaver. I hear her breathing. I hear her heartbeat. While I shouldn't go into specifics, for long stretches, this movie belongs to the kids. Think young adult fiction, as lessons are learned, rivalries morph into friendships with the more aquatic teens, Keep up far, sport. and things get set up for Avatars 3, 4, and 5. The concentration on family is new this time, but the thing that stayed constant so far is the filmmaker's obviously sincere passion about the environment. It was there at the start, Pandora's ecosystem in perfect balance until the arrival of humans, and Avatar Way of Water doubles down on that notion. No more talk of strip mining unobtainium, possibly because it sounds silly. Now the reason humans have come to Pandora is they've finally wrecked planet Earth and need a new planet to despoil. That, as Cameron is well aware 13 years after the first Avatar, doesn't sound silly at all. I'm Bob Mondello.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tens of thousands of nurses walked out today in the biggest strike in the history of Britain's National Health Service. They're joining striking rail workers, mail carriers, and some airport immigration officers in the largest series of labor actions in the UK in more than a decade. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London. There are a couple hundred nurses protesting out in front of a hospital here. It's just across the river from Big Ben, and they're holding up a bunch of signs. One says, can anyone find my friends? They all quit. Another says, currently nursing my inadequate pay. And just a moment ago, I was talking to a nurse. Her name is Rosie Woods. I think that nurses need to be given a pay rise that matches inflation because the cost of living is shot up so much and you've literally got nurses visiting food banks. Rising energy prices stemming from Russia's war in Ukraine and post-pandemic supply chain problems have driven inflation here to nearly 11 percent. The National Health Service, which provides free care, has, by most accounts, been underfunded and hemorrhaging workers for years. Woods focuses on identifying children who may be victims of domestic violence. She says because of low pay and high turnover, hundreds of children fall through the cracks. We regularly work over hours with caseloads that are unsafe and too big to manage, so it, it's just an accident waiting to happen, and they don't do anything until another child dies. The nurses are demanding a 19% raise, but Woods thinks they'll settle for less. Either way, the government here says it simply can't afford it. Officials say the economy is already in recession, and heavy public spending during the pandemic helped blow a $67 billion hole in the UK budget. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak insists the government is doing a lot to help its beleaguered health service, known as the NHS. We're already investing billions more in the NHS. We're already hiring thousands more doctors and nurses. Last year, when everyone else in the public sector had a public sector pay freeze, the nurses received a 3% pay rise. Some of those public service workers who had their wages frozen, they're striking too. On Wednesday, more than 100,000 postal workers walked out. So did rail workers, cutting train operations across the country by 80%. Matthew Lee, a train guard, was picketing in front of London's King's Cross station, which was nearly empty. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day where she's, um, she's not eating dinner to put food on the table at night. All she wants to do is have the money to, to feed her kids. Susan Milner is a professor of European politics who researches labor relations at the University of Bath. She says one reason so many public service workers are walking out now is because of the global financial crisis more than a decade ago. In the wake of that crash, the British government made massive cuts and workers never regained their purchasing power. So in general terms, we are poorer in our income than, say, pre-2008. And Milner says money isn't the only reason the government is resisting union demands. There are political reasons here as well, ideological reasons, I think, for a conservative government that wants to see itself as not giving in to unions. And it, in the conservative leadership contest over the summer, certainly there was a lot of rhetoric about having a hard line on trade unions and strikes. As cars passed the protesting nurses this morning, many honked in support. But there is public opposition to the mass strikes especially because they're coming during the holiday season. Scott Arthur works in a hotel in Newcastle. He's not sympathetic to railway workers like Matthew Lee. A load of rubbish. They've had a lot of taxpayers' money. 
Margaret Thatcher sorted them all out, and it's a shame she's gone, and now we're back to square one being held to ransom. Arthur's referring to Britain's Iron Lady, who's credited with crushing trade unions here back in the 1980s. Trade union membership is a lot smaller now, but workers are hoping their collective action can still bring big concessions from the British government. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on All Things Considered, after becoming a musical sensation in her country, Brazilian singer Anita sets her sights on global stardom. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In sports, the Bruins take on the Los Angeles Kings tonight at the Garden. The Bees have won their last two games. Tonight, it looks like the start of a wet end of the week. We'll have rain, but it won't be that cold. Temps will be around 40. Worcester County will have some light snow, but it's not expected to accumulate. Uh, We'll have some heavier snow out west, up to 6 to 12 inches uh, heading into the day tomorrow or through the day. If you're going to be out and about in our area tomorrow, expect to get wet. The rain will stick around for the day. It'll be windy with some pretty heavy wind gusts. We'll have a high in the mid-40s tomorrow. Saturday, the rain will move out. By that time, it might have helped ease the drought conditions that have been lingering in Essex County. Temperatures will be in the low 40s. And then Sunday should bring bright, sunny skies and a high around 40 degrees. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. There's a not great thing that happens when women are cut out of academic economics. It really tilts what economists study, and thus it tilts how we actually understand the economy that we're participating in. It perhaps even affects public policy. I'm Kai Rizdal. Sexism and harassment and economics next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. She may call herself just a girl from Rio, but she's making major inroads in the U.S. Anita, the superstar singer from Brazil, dropped her trilingual album this year, and its hit song Envolver is breaking records. On top of that, she's just snagged a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist. And as NPR's Carrie Kahn reports, it's the latest success for Anita, who started out singing funk, the popular but criminalized music of her favela Rio roots. Envolver has taken Anita from Brazilian star to global superstar. The album hit a billion plays on Spotify, and earlier this year, the song topped the streaming music site's global chart, the first time for a solo Latin female artist. It's crazy. Um, for me, it was 
amazing. At her home in one of West Rio's exclusive gated communities, Anita tells me she doesn't get hung up on numbers. She's enjoying her success. She's worked hard to get it, but realized she was limited singing in Portuguese. Few Brazilians have made the leap to an international stage, she says. Because you need to give up all the things that you have in Brazil to go to another market and learn Spanish, then learn English. I did also in Italian and French. So it's a completely different world. She's jumped worlds before. Anita, her stage name, didn't grow up along Rio's iconic Tony Beaches. Her neighborhood is much different, about an hour away, in Enorio Giorgel. Here, walls covered in graffiti tags line streets with large potholes. Barking dogs, salesmen hawking wares, and men scouring for scrap metal provide a continuous open-air score. Here, where I am right now, she was known as Larissa de Macedo Machado. She sang in the church right next door. I was told I couldn't record at the church, and since she sang here as a child, they say she's gone a different way. The way of funk, the pumping, piercing beats of the favelas, Rio's impoverished areas, Favela funk came to life in the late 1980s, but was criminalized in Brazil. It was linked to drugs, crime, and sexual immorality. There were multiple attempts to ban it, even as late as 2017. It's 24-year-old David Nascimento's go-to music, he says as he washes cars on a street corner down the hill from where Anita grew up. The funk is more he says funk these days is different, heavier than Anita's softer touch. But he says the police are still breaking up parties and dances here. Anita says for a teenager from the ghetto who liked to perform, funk was what was open to her. She resents its stigmatization. People were just singing their reality. So for you to change whatever we were singing, funk, you needed to change our reality first. You know, it's not about the rhythm, it's about what we are living there. She says she added pop to her funk, not to water it down, but to get it on the radio, to get recognition and respect, which she says she has brought to the genre and to other Brazilian artists. Brazilian producer and local artist Wallace Viana agrees. He collaborates with her and says she always brings local beats in when she can, like this one he plays me at his modern studio. His new fame also helped him move out of Rio's tougher outskirts. Ela ama e but he admits she does love the bubblegum melodies, those hooks that you can't shake. That catchy chorus is from Lobby with rapper Missy Elliott on the new album. She's worked with everyone from Madonna to Snoop Dogg and J Balvin, and is donning cover of magazines from Vogue to the Wall Street Journal, which named her its music innovator of 2022. Anita has the world listening and criticizing. 
but she shrugs off complaints of being too sexually exploitative, not feminist enough. I use the stereotypes to call the attention, but then I just break it. You understand what I'm saying? So I really use them full. But then when I get the attention, I just break it completely. I like doing that. That's best seen in her take of the classic girl from Ipanema, where she shows off what she says are real girls from Rio. Hot girls where I'm from, we don't look like models. Ten lines, big curves, and the energy glows. You'll be falling in love with the girl from Rio. While she celebrates all sizes, colors, and sexual orientations, Anita has come out as bisexual. She also touts her love of plastic surgery. The cover of her album, Versions of Me, shows off a host of changing headshots. Fans like 20-year-old Gabriel da Costa, who caught her live this month in Rio, love those contradictions. She reinvents herself all the time, he says. She came from nothing and has conquered the world. But earlier, she told me, as she approaches 30, she's ready to slow down. Her new album, while mostly for an American audience, with songs in Spanish, too, only has one in Portuguese. She's eager to put out more traditional work. Se você voltar pra ela, tente não se yeah, I have this dream about like when all these craziness is over, when I and I think it's pretty soon, pretty pretty soon. I I just want to sing songs like that and be chill. First, though, the ever workaholic says she's got the Grammys and Brazil's Carnival in February and is also taking up acting. But like the lyrics of this Bossa Nova-inspired song she sings, it's all okay, she says. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures with Empire of Light, a new film by Sam Mendes starring Olivia Coleman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about the power of human connection during a time of great change. Now playing in select theaters. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with kitchen products too, featuring a curated selection of brands including Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa.
dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Following big Democratic political wins in Georgia recently, Republicans and Democrats wonder what kind of a battleground state it'll be moving forward. We've got to get out of the mindset that you could slap an R next to a candidate's name and win by eight, nine, ten points. It's Thursday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, whether Georgia has truly transformed into a purple state. And Kurdish forces who fought ISIS in Syria are hoping their U.S. allies will convince Turkey to stop a campaign of airstrikes against them. The battle space in Syria is is really one of the most dynamic, crowded, and contested military operating environments in the world. More on the standoff and how the U.S. military is caught in the middle. And New Zealand enacts one of the strictest smoking bans in the world, but how effective will it be? It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden says he plans to visit sub-Saharan Africa next year to show U.S. support for the continent. And Pierre's Franco Ordonez has more. Speaking at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, Biden announced $55 billion in support over the next three years. He says the money represents a commitment to invest in Africa's people and Africa's infrastructure. African voices, African leadership, African innovation, all are critical to addressing the most pressing global challenges and to realizing the vision we all share, a world that is free, a world that is open, prosperous and secure. Biden is hosting this week's summit as part of an effort to refresh America's relationship with African nations. He also declared his support for the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Officials and families of those killed and wounded at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, were on Capitol Hill today. Texas uh, Public Radio's Marian Navarro reports they testified before the House Judiciary Committee to advocate for federal gun reform. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee began the hearing with the sound of gunfire from the day an 18-year-old gunman killed 19 students and two teachers in Uvalde. Those affected by the shooting testified in search of bipartisan solutions to end gun violence. Faith Mata, the older sister of 10-year-old victim Tess Mata, spoke at the hearing. You may never understand what my family is going through, and I'm not asking you to. But today, you can make a change to help families never have to feel what my family feels, the families of Uvalde feel, and the many others of the mass shootings. Democrats have called for a ban on AR semi-automatic firearms, but have been unsuccessful in gaining Republican support. I'm Maria Navarro in San Antonio. Federal health officials say the number of COVID cases is on the rise around most of the country over the past several weeks. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID response coordinator, is urging people to get their flu vaccines and updated COVID-19 boosters. The most important thing Americans can do is to go get their updated COVID-19 vaccine right away. 
Now, you heard this from Dr. Fauci just before Thanksgiving. You heard this from me. And I will repeat again, the updated COVID-19 vaccine is your best protection against the version of COVID we're fighting right now. Meanwhile, as health officials worry that COVID will spike during the holidays as people gather together, the Biden administration is once again making some rapid COVID tests available to U.S. households for free. The federal government stopped sending the free kits three months ago. A White House official says these new tests will come from the nation's stockpile, which still has reserves. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Governor Baker has a job lined up after he leaves office next month. Today, Baker was named the next president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA. The organization says it chose him in part because of his ability as a Republican governor to work together with the Democratic-controlled legislature for the benefit of the state. Baker says sports are a tool that bridges divides. I've always just believed that sports have this tremendous power to bring people together. You you just see it over and over again, the way in which athletics uh, can transcend so many other divisions. Baker played basketball during his time at Harvard. He will take over as NCAA president in March. Smith College economics professor Andrew Zimbalist says Baker will face challenges in the role leading the Indiana-based organization. If Charlie Baker thinks it's been tough to govern Massachusetts, wait till he moves to Indianapolis. Zimbalist says the NCAA wants Baker to help it get an antitrust exemption. I think the obvious reason why they have selected him is because they want a politician who will be able to work the scenes in Congress. An antitrust exemption would shield the organization from lawsuits, including several that would force it to pay college athletes. The MBTA wants to buy 24 acres of land at Wadette Circle between South Boston and the South End. It's a site that was once eyed as a possible home for an Olympic stadium. The T would use the property to build a new rail yard to service and store commuter rail trains. MBTA Chief Real Estate Officer Richard Henderson says it's the perfect fit. Most importantly, it's location and size. It's less than a mile from South Station, um, and it provides direct rail access immediately adjacent to the MBTA's service and inspection facility. Henderson says the new rail yard would reduce the time commuter rail trains need to lay over at South Station. He says that would save money, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and alleviate congestion on the Fairmont line. Well, tonight, rain will move in by about midnight. We'll have a low around 40 degrees. Some parts of Worcester County could see light snow. Then tomorrow looks like a Friday washout, and it'll be windy with gusts of 45 miles per hour or more near the coast. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. Saturday, the wet weather should clear out in the morning. Then it'll be mostly cloudy with a high around 43. Sunday, the sun should return, and it'll be about 40 degrees. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. For much of this year, the second of four years in office for President Joe Biden, his approval ratings have been in the basement. And yet, when asked what he'll do differently for the next two years? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. The more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. 
Let's now take stock of the president's ups and downs as we are halfway through his term. I'm joined now by Mara Liason, NPR's national political correspondent. Hey there. Hi there. So Mara, the president's year is ending on a bit of a high note. How much of that has to do with how Democrats performed in this year's midterms? A lot. There was no red wave, as was widely expected. And even though the president presided over historic inflation rates, That didn't sink the Democrats as many people had expected. They won despite the economy, or at least they kept their losses down, despite the economy, uh, not because of it. And now gas prices are coming down. Inflation seems to be subsiding a bit. And here's what Biden said just this week. Make no mistake, prices are still too high. We have a lot more work to do, but things are getting better headed in the right direction. And then you look at what Democrats were able to pass in the first two years of his presidency, and it's a pretty good record. It's not everything they wanted. But in the end, as White House advisors are willing to admit privately, they got lucky. They were blessed by their opponents. Republicans nominated just too many people who voters thought were out of the mainstream, and Democrats ended up with a historic result for a first-term midterm for the president's party. Okay, and you mentioned Democrats' records. I want to talk about that a little bit, about what they were actually able to get done. There was a huge aid package for COVID, spending on climate, infrastructure. Yeah, and what's even more surprising, a lot of those big wins were bipartisan. The infrastructure bill was bipartisan. The CHIPS Act, which is more spending for semiconductor plants so that the United States can be more competitive with China, that was bipartisan. The first gun safety legislation passed in 30 years was bipartisan. And just this week, President Biden signed the bipartisan Respect for Marriage bill into law. Big celebration on the South Lawn for that. Today's a good day. A day America takes a vital step toward equality, toward liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone. And Biden thanked Republicans who supported that bill. Of course, the bill couldn't have passed without 10 Republican votes in the Senate. This is the idea that he ran on. He ran on being the guy who could work across the aisle and get things done with the other party. Uh, He ran on a return to normalcy. And even though Uh, Democrats have been fixated on legislation that was bigger and more ambitious than they had the votes for, uh, giving the impression that sometimes they were flailing, if not failing. Uh, The president came out with a pretty respectable list of accomplishments. Despite that list of accomplishments you just ticked through, the president's approval rating is still languishing. It's at about 43 percent, according to the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, which is out today. So how big of a deal is it that Democrats were able to do better than expected in the midterms? Well, it's a very big deal. And I guess historical rules only work till they stop working. And right. what we all thought was a historical rule was then when a president's approval rating was as low as Biden's was, it meant that his party would really do terribly in the midterms. But we know from exit polls that a lot of people who disapproved of Biden's handling of the economy, one poll showed seven out of 10 voters disapproved of it, a lot of those voters, about a third of them, turned around and voted for Democratic candidates anyway. There used to be a very strong correlation between the economy and elections, and we've seen that correlation broken. Remember, President Donald Trump had a very strong economy, but his party lost the midterms. Biden had historic inflation and wasn't hurt that badly in the midterms. So a lot of assumptions, preconceived ideas about how politics work have really been challenged this year. And now we have another two years to figure out what the voters were really trying to tell us. And, you know, the president has said that he does intend to run again. He'll be talking to his family over the holidays to make that decision. But in the new year, Republicans will control the House. So a new era of divided government. What does that mean for President Biden? 
Divided government usually means the end of a president's legislative agenda. That's why the Democrats and the president pushed so hard to get so much done during the first two years. So I think we can look forward to less legislation and more investigations. In the House, you're going to hear a lot more about the president's son, Hunter Biden, and his laptop. You're going to hear about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Republicans are also talking about investigating the January 6th commission. Uh, divided government is also an opportunity for presidents because responsibility is shared, although it's not clear um, how much Republicans are going to be willing to cross the aisle to work with Biden. We're in a different era now. But in the past, Democratic presidents have been able to use Republican Congresses as a foil. President Clinton and Obama did this. They both lost Congress in the midterms, but they went on to be reelected. And I think Biden's message is going to be, look, the Congress can investigate anything it wants. I'm going to stay focused on things that Americans really care about, like opening new manufacturing plants. And also, don't forget, there's a dynamic in the House. We have a new group of moderate Republicans who won blue districts, especially in New York State, and they're going to want to bring something home to their constituents other than a bunch of subpoenas. All right. If we can, Mara, I want to circle back to the decision that President Biden says he's going to be making over the holidays. Let's take a listen to how he's described it. My judgment of running when I announce, if I know my intention is that I run again, but I'm a great respecter of fate. And uh, this is ultimately a family decision. I think everybody wants me to run, but they're go we're going to have discussions about it. So Mara, how are things lining up politically as the president is considering whether to seek office again? Well, this is really interesting because even though Biden's performance in the midterm appears to have quieted the ambitions of potential Democratic challengers, the appetite among Democratic voters for an alternative to Biden hasn't changed. They think he's just too old. And despite what he passed, despite inflation coming down, despite his record in the midterms, despite Republicans like Newt Gingrich warning people not to underestimate Biden, he is 80 years old, the oldest person to ever run for re-election. And that's a liability. And his age is going to be one of the biggest lines of attack for Republicans. That's NPR's Mara Liason. Mara, thank you. Thank you. Qatar's bid to host the World Cup came with an ambitious environmental goal off the field. FIFA president Gianni Infantino touted it in a promotional video earlier this year. FIFA is uh, playing its part with our aim to make the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 carbon neutral. Carbon neutral, meaning net zero emissions. While building seven stadiums, a new metro system, an entirely new city in the desert, and flying in fans and teams from around the world to Qatar. It's a country that is an energy superpower. It's among the top three exporters of natural gas um, in the world. And so for a country whose wealth is built on exporting fossil fuel, it's a little far-fetched to say that it would host an event for which it had to build just an astronomical amount of infrastructure and have that be carbon neutral. Climate reporter Suman Naishadam of the Associated Press went to Doha to check in on the climate impact of the tournament. After she got back, I asked her, is a carbon neutral World Cup even possible? It's also unlikely that even in a somewhat more green or clean uh, setting that hosting a mega sporting event like this can actually be carbon neutral. And the reason scientists say that and experts say that is because the whole mechanism of offsetting emissions is very tricky. And most scientists agree that for an event or something to not have an effect on the climate, those emissions should just not take place in the first place. Offsetting emissions, that's like, well, I might fly around the world, but I'm going to plant enough trees that those trees will absorb the amount of carbon my round-the-world flight emitted, right? Right, exactly. 
When you showed up in Doha and you looked at the infrastructure of the World Cup through the lens of emissions, what did you see? What stood out to you? Um, so I wrote a story on the city of Lusail that Qatar built more or less within the last 12 years. And that's where the finals are going to be held, right? Yes, that's right. And the city is just north of Doha. It's about 20 minutes north. And it is full of very unusual looking skyscrapers. And there were just very, very few people around. Most of the people I saw were construction workers. And meanwhile, most of these buildings whether they were commercial office space or apartments or residences, they're all branded as luxury. Um, a big criticism of these mega sporting events, not just in Qatar, but also in Brazil and South Africa before that, you know, is the idea of um, leaving white elephants, which are these stadiums that are built um, to much fanfare for an event like this and then just never, you know, really get used after and definitely not to that capacity. In Qatar, the scale is kind of even larger because, you know, there's just so much infrastructure, whether that's hotels and high rises or, or this entire city that, you know, kind of raises questions of how much use it will get after this event. When you confront the organizers of the World Cup with the reality compared to their promises, what do they say? How do they respond? Well, Qatari World Cup organizers, you know, responded by saying that their efforts should be recognized and not criticized. And, you know, I think that that makes sense from an organizer's standpoint a couple weeks before this event takes place. But, um, you know, they didn't really offer much information. And there's a lot of detail about their sustainability plans after the event that remain to be seen. Do you think the organizers have a point that making climate progress and keeping this in mind and putting on an event like this with an eye towards sustainability is a valuable goal and a worthy ambition that should be praised, even if they didn't meet the goal of carbon neutrality? I think yes and no. I think that some of the infrastructure that Qatar built for this World Cup is pretty sustainable and green. I think the the biggest example would probably be a solar power plant that was connected to the grid right before the World Cup started that at full capacity can power uh, some 10% of the country's um, energy needs. And those efforts, you know, should be recognized. But I'm not sure it's fair to say that those efforts mean you can just call an event like this carbon neutral. Um, I think, you know, those are two different things. And, and we should remember that. That's Suman Naishadam, a climate reporter for the Associated Press. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, New Zealand cracks down on lighting up. It's one of the strictest anti-smoking laws in the world. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
It was a rough day on Wall Street. The Dow had its worst day in three months, dipping 764 points, 2.3 percent, after news retail sales declined more than expected in November. The Dow ended the day at 33,202. The S&P fell 2.5 percent to close out at 38.96, and the Nasdaq dropped 3.2 percent, ending at 10,811. In local business news, the John Hancock sign at Fenway Park is going away. The insurance company is cutting off its long-running advertising relationship with the Red Sox, but the sign could find a new home in Back Bay. The Boston Globe reports John Hancock is considering putting the sign atop its 26-story building that it owns at 200 Berkeley Street. The building is recognizable by its weather beacon that flashes color-coded messages conveying the forecast. John Hancock would need permission from City Hall before it mounts the sign. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to wbur.org. It'll be rainy tonight and we'll have temps around 40. Worcester and North will have light snow, heavier snow in far western parts of the state into tomorrow. Tomorrow looks dreary and wet in most of the state. We should have rain all day and it'll be windy with gusts approaching 45 to 55 miles an hour in coastal communities. We'll see a high in the mid 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world, with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at LittlePassports.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In the fight against smoking, New Zealand has always been on the front lines. Back in 1990, it was one of the first countries to ban smoking in many workplaces. In 2004, it banned smoking in all restaurants and bars. And this week, New Zealand passed a law that will ban tobacco sales for anyone born after 2008. This rolling lifetime prohibition is just one of some of the strictest measures ever taken by one country. The new legislation also sharply limits where tobacco can be sold and the amount of addictive nicotine cigarettes can contain. Chris Bostick has been following this news. He's policy director for Action on Smoking and Health, an NGO dedicated to global tobacco control. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to have you. So, Chris, just to get started here, what is your reaction to this new law? Well, this is something we've been waiting for. We're very excited. We're hoping it will inspire other countries to follow suit. And several countries actually have said publicly that they're looking at what New Zealand is doing with an eye to doing it there. As a tobacco endgame policy, this is the first national example that we have. There's a number of cities that have done similar things, but no country yet. So uh, we've been waiting for this, and we're very excited. Just about 10% of adults smoke tobacco in New Zealand. After these measures go into effect next year, how much will they push down that number by your estimate? Well, that's going to be tough because uh, no one has done these measures at the national level before, so we don't know for sure. 
But I know that what New Zealand is hoping for is to get it down to less than 5% by 2025. And that was a goal that they set back in 2010. And interestingly, they discovered about three years ago that they weren't going to make it using traditional tobacco control policies. And to their credit, rather than changing the goalposts, they changed their strategy. There are critics of this law, of course, and they've pointed to some of the potential unintended consequences, such as, say, fueling a black market for tobacco. That's what happened when the country Bhutan banned tobacco in 2004, and they ultimately ended up reversing the law. Do you think that something similar could possibly happen in New Zealand? Well, certainly, if, if there are disastrous consequences that were unforeseen, yes, I'm sure that New Zealand will rethink I doubt that's going to happen. New Zealand is a a likely candidate to be the first for this, just given their island stature. It's going to be uh, much easier for them to control their borders. You know, Bhutan didn't necessarily get rid of their ban on uh, tobacco sales because of illicit trade per se. It was because of COVID. And they were worried Mm. that the, the, the black market routes getting into Bhutan were going to bring the virus in. And so that's why they rescinded that law. I wonder if you can tell us, how does vaping fit into this picture? Are regulators, to your knowledge, concerned that banning tobacco products will just push more young people to pick up vaping instead? There are a lot of people who uh, are worried about that, and I'm I'm one of them. Uh, There are people within public health who feel that we ought to be pushing people to use e-cigarettes as long as those people were already smoking. The the problem, of course, is that making them available commercially everywhere has led to a, a, a youth vaping epidemic. And of course, even if it's not as dangerous as smoked tobacco, certainly addiction itself is a harm, and we ought to be very concerned about youth. As we've been discussing, New Zealand has been particularly aggressive against smoking, but do you believe that measures like this could be politically viable in other countries? Oh, absolutely. Um, The countries that are sort of at the forefront of this are a a bunch of countries in Europe. Uh, Finland is a big one. They're trying to get to uh, 2% by 2040. Canada has a goal to get to 5% by 2030. And, you know, the U.S. actually had a goal of 5% by 2030. But earlier this year, they also realized they weren't going to make it. But instead of changing the strategy, they changed the goal. And so now the goal is 6.1% by 2030. Does that seem like a benchmark that is perhaps attainable? Perhaps. I, I doubt it without some new policies. So... Smoking rates have been going down in a number of countries in the last few decades, but in some places like Indonesia, for example, they're still climbing. So even as countries like New Zealand enact these strict policies, when you take stock of the global picture, are you optimistic? Well, we've made some progress. Some countries are still going up. In fact, there are more smokers now than there were yesterday. But I think it would have been worse without the last 20 years of action. Uh, Governments are starting to see that it, it can't all be focused on the demand side. It needs to be focused on the supply side. And of course, it's the tobacco industry that is causing this. It's, it's an industrially caused epidemic. And so we need to focus on that. The, the people that are addicted to nicotine were almost all addicted as children. And we should see them as our clients, as people that need help quitting. And most of them do, of course, want to quit. Chris Bostick is Policy Director for Action on Smoking and Health, an NGO dedicated to global tobacco control. Chris, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. The U.S. still has several hundred troops in northeastern Syria, and it has allies, mostly Kurdish militias, that have done a lot of the fighting against ISIS. But another U.S. ally, Turkey, has been conducting airstrikes against those militias. It says they're linked to Kurds in Turkey who have staged attacks. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports on the standoff and how the U.S. military is in the middle. 
For almost a month now, Turkish troops have hit towns and villages in northeast Syria with airstrikes and artillery, with Kurds there asking for help. <laughs> Mazlum Abdi, the leader of the Syrian Democratic Forces, the US-backed Kurdish militia that controls this region in Syria, says the fire has been relentless. He was making his case via Zoom to the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University. This is only the latest in a series of offensives by the NATO country against the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, in northeast Syria. And over the course of the Syrian civil war, Turkey has taken control of several pockets of northern Syria. Turkey, uh, under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has long wanted to go into Syria and seize more territory. Aaron Lund, an analyst with Century International, a U.S. think tank, says the Turkish government fights Kurdish groups in its own country and views Kurdish leaders in northeast Syria as a threat. This latest round of attacks follows an explosion last month on a busy shopping street in Istanbul that killed several people and wounded dozens. The Turkish government blamed the bombing on the Kurdish militia with ties to the Kurds in Syria. They deny any involvement. Lund believes Turkey's President Erdogan may have another incentive for escalating the conflict with militias in northeast Syria. There's an election coming in Turkey. One of the main issues of the election is the presence of millions of Syrian refugees in the country for a decade. Erdogan has been saying that we should seize these areas along the Turkish border in Syria to create safe zones or peace corridors. And Turkey would send refugees to there. That's sort of the strategy, that he dangles this as his solution to the refugee crisis. But the battles are taking place close to U.S. troops and Russian forces. The battle space in Syria is, is really one of the most dynamic, crowded and contested military operating environments in the world. That's Major General Matthew McFarlane, who heads the U.S.-led coalition that fights ISIS in Syria and Iraq in an interview. In the face of the Turkish offensive, the US-backed SDF called on Washington to intervene and strongly pressure Turkey to end the onslaught. The U.S. carries out joint patrols with the Kurds in Syria against ISIS, but it wants to avoid being drawn into any conflict with Turkey. McFarlane says ISIS remains the U.S.'s main focus. We know our mission, and that's what this coalition's focused on. White House officials have stepped up their public opposition to Turkey's threats of a ground invasion in Syria. And in recent days, Turkey's rhetoric has lessened. But the issues that led to these attacks remain unresolved. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in a little bit on All Things Considered, what is time really? Scientists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology track time with atomic clocks, but physicists are still trying to answer the ultimate question. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at ceres.org WBUR. Recently on Radio Boston. You know, there's so much about Shabby Wizard that I look at and I'm like, oh, that is me. You know, this person who feels kind of like an outsider, like they don't fit in being Puerto Rican within the United States, growing up in a mostly uh, white suburb at different points in my life, you know, feeling kind of like a fish out of water, right? Kind of like my culture that I'm from, I don't feel as a part of because I'm in this other context, but in this context, I don't feel fully like I fit in. That's Radio Boston, weekdays at 11 a.m. and again at 3 p.m., only on 90.9 WBUR. 
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Justice Department is suing Arizona and its governor in an effort to force the removal of shipping containers being used as a makeshift border wall, claiming it's trespassing on federal lands. From member station KJZZ, Greg Hawney reports. The complaint filed in U.S. District Court comes just three weeks before Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey steps down and Democratic Governor-elect Katie Hobbs takes the office. She has opposed the construction of the temporary barrier at the southern border, calling the move a political stunt. Earlier this week, Ducey told U.S. officials that Arizona is ready to help remove the shipping containers, but that he also wants the federal government to fill remaining gaps in the permanent border wall. Construction of the $95 million project placing 3,000 containers as a wall is about a third of the way complete. Protests have slowed work in recent days. For NPR News, I'm Greg Hani in Phoenix. Consumers cut back their retail spending in November as the holiday shopping season kicked off amid higher prices and rising interest rates. That forced many families, particularly those with lower incomes, to tighten their belts. Commerce Department says retail sales dropped six-tenths of a percent even as prices rose. Ted Rossman is senior analyst with Bankrate.com. People are being careful now. I think they might really be careful come January, February when the bills arrive and there's not all the holiday fanfare. Um, So I I think slowing consumer spending is is definitely on the side of the ledger of, uh uh-oh, a recession could be coming. The Commerce Department says sales were down across a broad range of retailers last month, with the biggest drop at car dealers, furniture, and home improvement stores. Stocks finished lower today across the board on Wall Street. Tech-heavy Nasdaq saw some of the biggest losses. It was down three and a quarter percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Harvard has chosen Claudine Gay to serve as the university's next president. Gay is currently dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. WBUR's Max Larkin has more from the Harvard campus. Claudine Gay, when she takes over in seven months, will be the first black person, the second woman to serve as the president of Harvard. She spoke movingly in her remarks about being the daughter of Haitian immigrants for whom college was always the goal. Uh, She says her parents wanted her to be an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer, but ended up supporting her as she uh, pursued an academic career in political science. Claudine Gay will replace Larry Bacow, who is retiring. Mayor Michelle Wu is proposing changes to Boston's zoning laws. She wants to increase the amount of affordable housing across the city. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. Wu's plan would require at least 20% of new multi-unit developments to be income-restricted. That's up from the current 13 percent. The proposal would also collect more fees from commercial developers to pay for affordable housing. Wu says too many people who work in Boston can't afford to live there. Our goal is to act with urgency and continue ensuring that we are addressing the needs that we see here in the city and across the region and to stem the flow of people who are falling through the cracks because of how hard it has become to afford to stay here. The proposals must be approved by the city's zoning commission. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. The winners of the Boston Music Awards were announced last night at a packed ceremony at Big Night Live. WBUR's Amelia Mason was there to capture the scene. Winners from previous years swept the major titles, with rapper Cousin Stiz crowned Artist of the Year for the third time. I'm just a girl in the process of making a hand, man, so I appreciate that. 
But the biggest impact was on first-time winners, like Yelena Rodriguez, who wiped away tears after being named Latin Artist of the Year. Where I come from, I, especially my parents, my parents always taught me to strive for more. And with this platform that I have, I want to be able to have other Latin artists like myself to know like it's possible, you know? This was the first time the Boston Music Awards featured a Latin music category since 1995. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Tonight will be rainy with a low around 40. Looks like there will be some light snow in Worcester County, heavier snow in western Mass. The rain will hang out tomorrow. It should be wet from start to finish with temps in the mid-40s, and it'll range from breezy to downright windy. Saturday, the rain should stop by sometime in the morning, making way for a cloudy day. The high will be around 43. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston with light rain. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. We're still learning details about a far-right group's planned coup in Germany. There was stunning news last week that 25 people had been arrested for allegedly trying to overthrow the German government. NPR Sergio Olmos has been looking into the details of what the group was planning and how the plotters may be connected to other extremist groups. Hey, Sergio. Hey, Ari. Start by reminding us what we know about what happened last week, what the plotters were trying to do. The raids last week were among the largest in German post-war history. 3,000 officers searched 130 properties, making 25 arrests and more expected to come. At the heart of all this is this far-right group called the Reichsburger, or Citizens of the Reich. Uh, They deny the legitimacy of the German government. In some ways, they're similar to the sovereign citizens movement here in the U.S. It it sounds far-fetched. Nobody thinks that this group had a realistic shot uh, of storming parliament and bringing down the government. Uh, Institutions are quite strong, but they made a professional attempt at it. They really did plan this out. Some of the people arrested were a judge, a doctor, former members of the military, including from the special forces. Uh, They were so, so organized to the point that some of the documents seized were non-disclosure agreements of people they approached to try to recruit for, among other things, forming 280 armed groups across Germany to begin, quote, arresting and executing certain people after the coup. Wow. What more can you tell us about the people who were behind this planned coup? One of the leaders arrested is a a, a 71-year-old aristocrat. Uh, He's got royal blood lineage. He's trying to restore the greatness of the German Empire. Uh, But this movement has been around for years at the fringe in German society, uh, mostly irrelevant. But something else has happened in the last few years, something we're all familiar with, the pandemic and the mainstreaming of far-right conspiracy theories, the most popular of which is QAnon. Let's listen to Miro Dietrich. He's a senior researcher in Germany at the Center for Monitoring Analysis and Strategy. And with the internet, we've seen just a global community of an alternative reality emerging. 
for example, Germany has the biggest non-English speaking QAnon community in the world. And um, they are quite heavily influenced by the narratives that come from the U.S. That narrative in the U.S. has been shaped over the last few years by the rise of Donald Trump, far-right ideas moving into the mainstream, as we said, uh, to the point where conspiracies are no longer fringe. 15% of Americans and one in four Republicans say they believe in QAnon, according to research from the Public Religion Research Institute done last year. So this was a plot in Germany fed by ideas from the U.S. Does it extend beyond that? Like, are we talking about a global far-right movement? Yeah, that's what extremism experts are warning about. This isn't an outlier, but part of a trend, not just in one or two countries, but worldwide. I talked to Heidi Byrick. She's with the nonprofit Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Here's how she put it. Extremism, both in the form of anti-government ideologies, which is what this Reichsberger movement is in Germany, and which we have here in the form of militias and groups like the Oath Keepers, and in terms of white supremacy, is a rising threat in many, many countries. Almost every country in Europe is seeing a rise in far-right activism, far-right political parties, uh, and basically a lot of activity among extremists. So what we're seeing are fringe ideas and rhetoric enter the mainstream, and it's important to remember these are fundamentally anti-democratic forces. It's not about making a change at the ballot box. It's about change through violent force. Uh, So these groups are learning and taking inspiration from each other even when they fail. It's a cross-pollination happening globally. And the idea of storming the German parliament is similar, you know, to what we saw here on January 6th with the riots at the Capitol. And just today, there are three men were handed down sentences for their plot in a for their part in a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer in 2020, underscoring the climate of political violence here in the U.S. That's NPR National Security Correspondent Sergio Olmos. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Florida, Ohio, these were once perennial swing states, but a new pack of battlegrounds is emerging, including Georgia. Last cycle, Democratic candidates for president and Senate won there for the first time in years. Then this November, Republicans swept every statewide race except for the Senate, where Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock prevailed in a runoff last week. WABE's Sam Greenglass tries to answer the question, has Georgia arrived as a purple state? I put this question to some experts. Georgia is a battleground state. It may be pink. It may be lavender. I definitely think that we're a purple state. I don't really sit and look at purple or blue or red. Everyone's trying to make sense of Georgia's turn at the center of the political universe. We are absolutely here to stay. How many more cycles do we have to win to prove it? Rebecca DeHart directs the Democratic Party of Georgia. The party is working to make Georgia an early primary state in 2024. Atlanta is a finalist to host the Democratic National Convention. Georgia Democrats have always said that our state will play a critical role in the national political landscape, and our state has been prioritized as such. Though Emory University professor Andra Gillespie says pinpointing Georgia's political hue is still complicated. She says Georgia's growth and diversity are shifting the state's politics, but... Demographics are dynamic. This question of, uh, is Georgia pink or is it purple... It's really going to take much of this decade to settle that question. State government is still dominated by the GOP. And in the Senate runoff, Republican Herschel Walker lost by less than three points. That's despite his baggage, including allegations of domestic abuse. We need to be cautious about looking at uh, behavior in this runoff election and trying to extrapolate other things from it, in part because Herschel Walker was such a unique candidate. Last cycle, Democrats eked out wins in another unique environment. Back then, Donald Trump was a prominent factor. 
So does that mean recent Democratic victories were blips? Here's Republican strategist Cody Hall. One of my friends used to say, if ifs and buts were figs and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. It doesn't matter really whether it's a specific circumstance or not. They've been winning. I'm at Hall near the towering Christmas tree in the state capitol's rotunda. Nearby is the office of Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Hall was a top staffer on Kemp's campaign. This year, Kemp trounced his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams. And in a cycle otherwise good for Georgia Republicans, Herschel Walker floundered. We've got to get out of the mindset that it is still 2010, 2014, when you could slap an R next to a candidate's name and win by eight, nine, ten points. If you nominate the wrong candidates, if you don't have a winning message, and if you don't raise the money, you will lose. Years of organizing irregular and non-voters helped catalyze that shift. Those efforts accelerated with Abrams' 2018 bid for governor. Helen Butler directs the nonpartisan Coalition for the People's Agenda. The group's office walls are plastered with decades of memorabilia. Years and years of work, yes, definitely so. Butler doesn't gauge Georgia's politics in shades of blue, red, and purple. Instead, she looks at the roughly 1.6 million new registered voters since 2018. I know that turnout is much better, and that's what we aim for. And I have to say, as of now, the participation rates are excellent. That participation has made Georgia more competitive. Even so, the November turnout rate fell from 2018. I know that there are a lot of people of color that we've registered to vote that didn't show up at the polls. So my interest is getting those people to make that next step. Whatever you call Georgia, purple, battleground, swingy, it'll likely be at the forefront of politics in 2024 and beyond. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. listening to All Things Considered. Today, Oregon announced a nearly $700 million settlement with agrochemical company Monsanto. The state filed the lawsuit in 2018 for Monsanto's alleged role in polluting Oregon land and waterways with toxic compounds. We'll be hearing later from an Oregon public broadcasting reporter, Cassandra Perfida, about the significance of the settlement for Oregon, how the state said it will help spend this record-breaking settlement money, and what Oregon's saying about the settlement. We're trying to get OPB reporter Cassandra Profita on the line. Until we do, we are going to uh, try to go to another segment um, that we may have on tape. I'm going to ask for pulling back the curtain here a little bit of guidance from the control room of what we have queued up for you. All right. Uh, The U.S. still has several hundred troops in northeastern Syria, and it has allies, mostly Kurdish militias, that have done a lot of the fighting against ISIS. But another U.S. ally, Turkey, has been conducting airstrikes against those militias. It says they're linked to Kurds in Turkey who staged attacks. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more. For almost a month now, Turkish troops have hit towns and villages in northeast Syria with airstrikes and artillery, with Kurds there asking for help. Maslum Abdi, the leader of the Syrian Democratic Forces, the U.S.-backed Kurdish militia that controls this region in Syria, says the fire has been relentless. 
He was making his case via Zoom to the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University. This is only the latest in a series of offensives by the NATO country against the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, in northeast Syria. And over the course of the Syrian civil war, Turkey has taken control of several pockets of northern Syria. Turkey, uh, under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has long wanted to go into Syria and seize more territory. Aaron Lund, an analyst with Century International, a U.S. think tank, says the Turkish government fights Kurdish groups in its own country and views Kurdish leaders in northeast Syria as a threat. This latest round of attacks follows an explosion last month on a busy shopping street in Istanbul that killed several people and wounded dozens. The Turkish government blamed the bombing on the Kurdish militia with ties to the Kurds in Syria. They deny any involvement. Lund believes Turkey's President Erdogan may have another incentive for escalating the conflict with militias in northeast Syria. There's an election coming in Turkey. One of the main issues of the election is the presence of millions of Syrian refugees in the country for a decade. Erdogan has been saying that we should seize these areas along the Turkish border in Syria to create safe zones or peace corridors. And Turkey would send refugees to there. That's sort of the strategy, that he dangles this as his solution to the refugee crisis. But the battles are taking place close to U.S. troops and Russian forces. The battle space in Syria is, is really one of the most dynamic, crowded and contested military operating environments in the world. That's Major General Matthew McFarlane, who heads the U.S.-led coalition that fights ISIS in Syria and Iraq in an interview. In the face of the Turkish offensive, the US-backed SDF called on Washington to intervene and strongly pressure Turkey to end the onslaught. The U.S. carries out joint patrols with the Kurds in Syria against ISIS, but it wants to avoid being drawn into any conflict with Turkey. McFarlane says ISIS remains the U.S.'s main focus. We know our mission, and that's what this coalition's focused on. White House officials have stepped up their public opposition to Turkey's threats of a ground invasion in Syria. And in recent days, Turkey's rhetoric has lessened. But the issues that led to these attacks remain unresolved. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Ari Shapiro talks with rising jazz singer Samara Joy. And then next hour, a leak on a Russian spacecraft docked at the International Space Station sparks concerns. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Rain will move in by about midnight. We'll have a low around 40 degrees tonight. Some parts of Worcester County could see light snow. Then tomorrow looks like a Friday washout. It'll be windy, too, with gusts of 45 miles per hour or more near the coast. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. The wet weather should clear out Saturday morning with temps around 43. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Huntington Theater. Give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. Huntingtontheater.org slash gifts. A lot of people, a lot of really intelligent people, thought it would mean the end for Putin when the war came to Moscow and the coffins started coming home all across Russia. But so far, it hasn't. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Earlier this fall, late on a Wednesday night, I went to a jazz club that's been around for more than half a century. Blues Alley here in Washington, D.C. is a place where many greats have played. Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Rollins, Sarah Vaughan, and on this night, a newcomer graced the stage who is already on a path to follow in their footsteps. Samara Joy was just 22 years old at the time. This is my first time in D.C. At 19, she won a prestigious competition named after Sarah Vaughan. So I was shocked when she told me she only started singing jazz at age 18. Before that, she did plays and sang in the church choir. Now she's touring the world. And her album, Linger a While, just got nominated for two Grammy Awards. Just can't get out of this mood last night. The morning after her show, Samara Joy came into NPR to chat. Turns out she comes from a musical family. My dad, he's a bass player, so it was a lot of like funk and like soul and R&B. But also, he was the one who mainly grew up in church and grew up playing in church. And um, his parents, my grandparents, they had a, a choir called the Savets of Philadelphia. But he also used to tell stories about the fact that they had a Godmobile. Like they had, they rented a van, and they called it the Godmobile. They like painted it really big on the car, and they would ride around Philly and just pick a corner and literally have church on any corner that they could, <laughs> that they felt you know led to do. And he would play, and they would you know they would do praise and worship, and my my grandparents you know would preach. So on this album, you do some really well-known standards like <laughs> Misty and Round Midnight. When you approach a song like that, do you do a ton of research and listen to the way others have approached it, or do you try to come to it with a clean slate and bring your own interpretation? I think with songs like that, because at least at this point, because I've listened to them already and I already have a version in my head that I love, I I do a, a bit of both. I'm like, oh, I love the way Ella, you know, sings this phrase, but I can't copy, you know, I can't I can't copy exactly. So it's a bit of a mix. Can you give us an example? Like, can you take a moment in one of these tracks and say, oh, well, so-and-so might have done it this way, but... Well, in Misty, there's a live performance of Ella, and she's like, walk my way. A thousand violins begin to play. She does it. She like walks up and it's like, it's so beautiful and majestic. I was like, I have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I did. I think I recorded it like that. But I know that when we came up with the arrangement, I wanted it to be, you know, simple and just give the song space to breathe. But I added um, kind of a little bit of a scale in the beginning and at the end to give it some mystery. And too much
There are also some of your own lyrics on this album. Tell yes. us where we can hear them. You can hear my own lyrics on Nostalgia. Nostalgia hit me as I recall the day I knew that I loved you. Nostalgia, the melody that you're singing here was originally a trumpet line. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to put words to it? I was in class, and <laughs> my professor, John Faddis, is like, what do you have to present today? And I was like, okay, I listened to um, Nostalgia again. I really love it. And this is one solo that I knew that he would, I guess, appreciate me doing and learning. And this but, professor is a famous trumpet player. Yes. <laughs> the way you smiled was a work of art. You wouldn't believe how it thrilled me. He was like, yep, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Finish it. We Let's listen to, to a little bit of it. Okay. Oh. Are you, does it still make you embarrassed to hear yourself? <laughs> really? <laughs> wow, that surprises me. <laughs> you're blushing. A little bit. <laughs> but on stage, you're just so chill and relaxed. I think the people help. I figured after all this time and all these years together, all the memories made that you would be tired by now. Tell us about where these lyrics came from. So, nostalgia. The album cover is a trumpet on a bench. And so I was like, hmm, you know, Fats Navarro, he died from tuberculosis and and he was only 26 years old. And looking at that trumpet on the bench, I was like, well, what if he was, you know, 60 or 70 years old and he was able to look at the person he loved and, you know, and and recall the day that they first met. He might have been like playing at a gig or something. I was just trying to imagine, you know, and I used the the model of my own parents. They're celebrating 31 years of marriage in November. So I wanted to try to use that example of like long-term love and, and apply it to this situation. And now the feelings are just as strong as when I first laid eyes on you. You won the prestigious Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Vocal Competition when you were 19 years old. Yes. And you're now 22. Mm-hmm. And jazz audiences tend to be older folks these days. Mm-hmm. What do you think the secret is to attracting younger fans to this music? Hmm. Most of the younger people that I see are musicians themselves, too. So I, I, I've been trying to get on TikTok and, <laughs> and um, be more active on social media because that's where my generation is. And I, you know. <laughs> you say you're trying to get on TikTok, yeah. but like. But in your dreams, whatever they be, make me a promise. You just kind of offhandedly sang a version of Dream a Little Dream that racked up close to two million views. Dream a little dream of me. So I think you're succeeding at being on TikTok. (laughs) Doing all right. I I really only started um, doing TikTok in January of this year. I posted a couple of videos and a month later, 100,000 people. I was like, I can't. (laughs) <laughs> this is too this is too much you know the fact that in in just a month you know that many people and and people are now like coming up to me like i found you on social media i found you on tiktok and i just had to you know come see a show happened to pass your doorway gave you a buzz. so um i think anything you know to to share the music and then if people you know my age are attracted to it and they want to know more about it then it's cool do you recall the old days that was Samara Joy. Her new album is called Linger a While, and it's out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu team. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A major leak aboard a Russian spacecraft docked at the International Space Station. When you see it leaking fluid like that, you know something very, very bad is happening. What it will mean for the seven people aboard the station, including three Americans. It's Thursday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we now know what's next for outgoing Governor Charlie Baker. He'll lead the governing body for college sports, the NCAA. Announcing the decision, Baker praised the power of sports. You, you just see it over and over again, the way in which athletics uh, can transcend so many other divisions. And what is time, really? Scientists track time with atomic clocks, but are still trying to answer that ultimate question. Marketplace is at 6.30. Right now at 6.01, news headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In New York, just a few weeks after Buffalo and Watertown were buried by several feet of snow, the state is gearing up for its next storm. Ava Pukach from member station WRVO reports officials are warning of power outages and travel restrictions. With several areas of New York under a winter storm warning through Saturday morning, Governor Kathy Hochul says bring on the storm. We have all the plows Tow trucks, loaders, snowblowers, we got plenty of gas, we got plenty of fuel, we got plenty of salt. Uh, we are ready to respond. Hochul says up to 6,500 utility workers are ready to respond statewide. In critical regions of the state are receiving additional plow and equipment operators. The governor is urging for no unnecessary travel during the storm to maintain safety and allow time for crews to clear the roads. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse. After the House yesterday passed a measure to fund the government for one more week, it's now up to the Senate to pass it and send it to the president ahead of a potential government shutdown on Friday night. NPR's Humana Bastille has more. The measure known as a continuing resolution would give lawmakers an extra week to negotiate a much larger omnibus spending package that could fund the government for a year. 
Without some agreement in place, the government would largely shut down on Friday at midnight. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is vowing to act quickly. We should move quickly to avert a shutdown today without any unwelcome brouhaha that has caused shutdowns in years past. He says both parties will spend the day working on the agreement. Earlier this week, lawmakers unveiled their proposal for a package that would fund the government until the next fiscal year. But the specifics of what will be included and final dollar amounts are still being worked on. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street had its worst day in months. As NPR's David Gura reports, new data are fueling new fears of a recession. The tech-heavy Nasdaq fell by about 3.2 percent, and the broader-based S&P 500 by about 2.5 percent. Stocks fell after the opening bell to their lowest around lunchtime. The latest retail sales data from the Commerce Department showed a drop of 0.6 percent in November. That's larger than Wall Street expected, and a sign of the toll high inflation is taking on consumers. Those data came a day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point, and the central bank indicated it would keep at it in 2023. Among the biggest losers were the video game maker Roblox and Netflix. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And by the closing bell, the Dow was down 764 points. That's down 2.2 percent. The Nasdaq down 360 points. That's a drop of 3.2 percent. And the S&P 500 down 99. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Outgoing Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker has been named the next president of the NCAA. That's the organization that oversees college sports. Baker says he was first approached about the job a couple of months ago. He says college athletics give opportunity and help people learn. It is through sports that so many people find themselves and develop a lot of the skills and capabilities that translate through the rest of their lives. Members of Baker's team that helped him transition into the governor's office are voicing their support for their former boss and his next career move. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more from two former members of Baker's team. MASH GOP activist and writer Ed Lyons says he couldn't be more excited for the governor. I've never met a sports fan as big as Charlie Baker in my entire life. I think he wants to see education be better. He's done a lot with vocational tech and other things, so I think he's perfect for this role. I'm so happy for him. Lyons was on Baker's Better Government Committee in 2014. He served with Codman Square Health Center founder Bill Walzak, who was on Baker's Health Committee. I hope he can make sure that the student-athletes are treated well. I have a lot of confidence in him. I know that he's a big uh, sports fan and uh, that he's also a decent person. So I hope it uh, works out for his best and for uh, the country's best. Baker will take on the new role in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Insurer Blue Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts says it's now rewarding hospitals for delivering equitable health care. Andrew Dreyfus is the organization's CEO. He says Blue Cross is changing how it pays providers with the goal of financially incentivizing them to close existing racial gaps in preventive services. I think that can begin a process of trying to revolutionize um, how health plans and other purchasers pay for care. So far, Blue Cross has inked equity deals with providers, including Beth Israel Leahy Health and Mass General Brigham. In sports, the Bruins take on the Los Angeles Kings tonight at the Garden. The Bees have won their last two games. Tonight looks like the start of a wet end of the week. We'll have rain, but it won't be that cold. The low will be around 40. 
Worcester County will have some light snow. There will be heavier snow in the far western parts of the state, 6 to 12 inches in some parts by the end of tomorrow. The rain will stick around most of the rest of the state all day tomorrow. It'll be windy, too, with some pretty heavy wind gusts. We'll have a high in the mid-40s. Then Saturday, the rain will move out in the morning. Temperatures will be in the low 40s that day. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This show starts at 6 minutes and 30 seconds past the hour, exactly. And we measure everything we say and record to the hundredths of the second. Knowing the time is what keeps this show running. And it's the same time you see on watches, phones, and walls. But time has another side to it one that the clocks don't show. As part of our series, Finding Time, NPR's Jeff Brumfield went on a quest to uncover the truth about time. America's official time is kept at a government laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. It seemed like kind of a logical place to go learn about time. I was supposed to show up at 9 sharp. Turn right onto Rayleigh Road. Well, I'm just arriving and they have a clock out front and I can see I'm about seven minutes late. I rushed across the campus of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, fumbling with my recording gear. Sorry, just give me one more sec. And arrived at a lab run by a guy named Jeff Sherman. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry I'm running late. We only measure the nanoseconds. It's okay. Sherman takes me straight into a room where they measure the time. This lab is actually owned by the Department of Commerce, which he says makes sense when you think about it, because time is a commodity. No one disagrees that if you're measuring out gold, you're going to do so with the best possible scale, the best possible balance. You're going to care about micrograms. Well, time, in a sense, is the least renewable resource there is, at least the present moment. Once you experience, you're never getting back. There are three big boxes in here, each of which holds a high-precision atomic clock. This one's called George, Fiona, Elvis? They all have quirks and personalities, and when they fail at 2 a.m., you want to have a little bit of compassion for them, so you give them names. We walk over to the big gray box marked Elvis. So this thing is not a clock. This is a chicken-egg incubator that's been repurposed, repainted, and tripled in price and sold to us. The incubators are used to keep the delicate atomic machinery at just the right temperature. Except today, Elvis is broken. You think it's got a small air leak, and one of these days we're going to get around to fixing it. But in the meantime, I don't mind pulling the doors off. We open Elvis, and inside is another box with a tube sticking out the bottom. And the interesting bit is if you lean down and look that away, you should see a pink glow. Uh through a little hole. Oh, yeah. The glow comes from atoms of hydrogen. The atomic clock works by exciting hydrogen and then measuring the light waves that come off the atoms. Sherman says think of it as striking an atomic tuning fork. It's a tone of light. And then this is an instrument that tries to sample, tries to listen to a little bit of that light and count the cycles of oscillation in that light. Those light cycles are the tick of this clock. There are 21 clocks like Elvis spread across the campus, and they're all used to set America's time. It's an incredible system that's accurate to better than a trillionth of a second. 
But here's the thing, you've got to keep counting all those little trillion seconds. If you stop, if you blink, you don't know the time anymore. In exchange for this wonderful idea, you're now beholden to count forever and not lose track. This feels like the most Sisyphean job, the most sort of like rolling the ball up the hill, forever and ever job I've ever heard. You, you said it, brother. <laughs> so this is time. 21 government atomic clocks counting to infinity in tiny, precise increments. And we all look at our watches and cell phones, and we know exactly what time it is, right? Well, as it turns out, maybe not. A lot of us grow up being fed the idea of time as absolute. Shonda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical physicist at the University of New Hampshire. She says this absolute ticking time is only what the government wants you to think time is, because it keeps us all in line. Think about it. The official time runs our lives, it says, when planes take off and land. When does the market open? When does the market close? Can I make that trade right now? Are my kids at school on time? Am I late to work? Am I late to the lab where they keep track of the time? Governments around the world aren't giving us the time to be nice. It's to increase efficiency. This is about the economy. Yeah, capitalism sucks. And I think like I think a lot of a lot of people's relationship to why time is like not cool is structured by the resource pressures that we feel. Okay, so the time I just saw in the lab, the one you see on your cell phone, that's just counting, a social construct. It's not true time. So what is? I ask Prescott Weinstein. Time is not an absolute, and that's radical. She's not talking about time zones. She means time itself changes depending on where you are in space. Space and time are tied together, and space-time can bend. It can curve. The way to think about it is that that curvature is stretching out time. As time stretches, it slows. The best-known force that stretches time is gravity. So take people on Earth and compare them to people aboard the space station. The gravitational field of the International Space Station is much weaker than the gravitational field here on Earth. So we are feeling stronger gravity on Earth. So for us here on Earth, time is flowing differently. These effects are minuscule compared to a human lifespan, but get further from Earth and time gets really freaky. Katie Mack is an astrophysicist at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Canada. She says that the universe is expanding from the Big Bang, and that expansion is stretching time too. When you see things in the really, really distant universe, because of the expansion of the universe, it takes longer for things to happen. Compare, for example, two identical stars that explode, one nearby and one that blows up far away. If we see a star exploding and that star takes about 10 days to go from the sort of brightest part of the explosion to, to dim again, if we look at it in the very distant universe, it might take 20 or 30 days. Again, that faraway star isn't exploding more slowly. Time is ticking more slowly, at least from our perspective. In fact, when Mac looks at really big events in the universe, like the Big Bang, time becomes so twisted she doesn't even bother with it. We don't really use time as the marker for the passage of time, if you see what I mean. No, I don't. And I still don't know what time is. And then Mac drops a real time bomb. She tells me that when she talks to scientists who study the most fundamental particles in the universe, they tell her that they suspect time might be an illusion, a side effect of something else that's going on in the cosmos. And it is a little bit maddening because 
you're just trying to have a conversation. They're like, oh yeah, you know, space and time are, are you know, probably not real. And you're like, wait, what, what is then actually? So I can't tell you what time is because I'm not even really sure what's real anymore. Okay, deep breaths. Back to NIST, that government lab where the clocks keep ticking. Tara Fortier is another physicist. She reassures me that time actually exists. I'd say time feels pretty real whenever I look in the mirror. <laughs> whenever I get a new passport photo, time feels very real to me. And look, she gets it. They all do. All they're doing is counting. True time, whatever it is, isn't on a clock. And her personal time reflects that. Every night before bed, she meditates. And those 10 minutes every night that I meditate before sleep are very slow. Just sitting and listening and feeling my body helps me enormously. And how do you know when you're done? Do you have a timer? I have a timer that's attached to the NIST atomic clock. <laughs> Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Busted. <laughs> NASA and Russian space managers are scrambling to understand the cause of a major leak at the International Space Station. Yesterday, a Russian capsule docked to the station spewed coolant uncontrollably for hours. While NASA says the crew is safe for now, the incident raises questions about the safety of the seven people on board. For member station WMFE, Brendan Byrne explains. Russian cosmonauts Sergei Prokopia and Dmitry Patelin were inside the station's airlock about to begin a spacewalk, but then warnings that the Soyuz capsule was jetting liquid into space. The cause uh, of that leak of coolant, not known at this point. The effect, not yet known at this point. Ground teams canceled the spacewalk. While the crew was safe, the sight of a leaking spacecraft was unsettling, says Terry Vertz, a retired NASA astronaut who flew to the station in a Soyuz capsule in 2014. When you see it leaking fluid like that, you know something very, very bad is happening. That Soyuz spacecraft transported the cosmonauts and a NASA astronaut to the ISS in September. It's their planned ride home in March. But in the short term, Marcia Smith with Space Policy Online says it's also a key piece of safety hardware, like a lifeboat. So you have to have a way to get off the space station if there's an emergency. It's unknown if they'll be able to use this capsule to eventually return to Earth. Russia may need to launch an uncrewed replacement vehicle. There has been pretty much an ironclad rule since the space station got up there that you can only have as many people on board the space station at any one time as you have lifeboats to get them off. There are four other astronauts on the ISS that arrived in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, which was unaffected by the coolant leak and can still serve as a lifeboat for that crew. But as NASA and Russia's space agency work to resolve the issue, retired astronaut Terry Vertz is urging caution. When investigating a leak on another Soyuz spacecraft in 2018, Russia blamed NASA astronauts and even alleged sabotage by a U.S. crew member. The origin of that leak was never revealed. And with the Russia war in Ukraine, diplomatic tensions remain high. So I really hope they do the right thing, but I think we should not be putting ourselves in this position where we have to depend on them to do the right thing. And so it's a, it's a serious problem on a technical level and also on a, on a much bigger picture level also. And that spacewalk, which has been delayed twice, will have to wait as teams on the ground and at the station work to figure out what caused the leak in the first place. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker will move from Beacon Hill to the world of college sports when he leaves office next month, taking over the reins of the NCAA. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chevalier Theatre in Medford Square, featuring Il Devo, a new day tour with special guest Stephen Labrie, March 1st at 8, ChevalierTheatre.com. It was a tough day on Wall Street. The Dow had its worst day in three months, dropping 2.3 percent, 764 points, to end the day at 33,202. The S&P fell 2.5 percent to close out at 38.96. And the Nasdaq dropped an even bigger 3.2 percent, ending at 10,811. In local business news, General Electric's new energy division is planning to open its global headquarters in Kendall Square, Cambridge, within two years. GE Vernova will have up to 200 employees working in a renovated building on Charles Street. The company says it selected Cambridge for its dynamic environment of education, talent, and innovation. General Electric has already scaled back its corporate headquarters in Boston's Fort Point Channel as the company has downsized. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Looking for the perfect holiday gift? Tickets to WBUR City Space's winter season are now on sale. You can check out the lineup of new and returning guests and get tickets at WBUR.org events. It'll be rainy overnight tonight and through the day tomorrow with light snow in central Mass, more snow in the far western parts of the state. The low tonight will be around 40. Temps will rise to the mid-40s tomorrow, and it'll be rainy all day over much of the state, windy too. The rain will clear out Saturday for a cloudy day with temperatures in the low 40s. Sunday looks sunny with a high around 40. It's 42 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England, Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Tens of thousands of nurses walked out today in the biggest strike in the history of Britain's National Health Service. They're joining striking rail workers, mail carriers, and some airport immigration officers in the largest series of labor actions in the UK in more than a decade. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London. There are a couple hundred nurses protesting out in front of a hospital here. It's just across the river from Big Ben, and they're holding up a bunch of signs. One says, can anyone find my friends? They all quit. Another says, currently nursing my inadequate pay. And just a moment ago, I was talking to a nurse. Her name is Rosie Woods. I think that nurses need to be given a pay rise that matches inflation because the cost of living is shot up so much and you've literally got nurses visiting food banks. Rising energy prices stemming from Russia's war in Ukraine and post-pandemic supply chain problems have driven inflation here to nearly 11 percent. 
The National Health Service, which provides free care, has, by most accounts, been underfunded and hemorrhaging workers for years. Wood's focus is on identifying children who may be victims of domestic violence. She says because of low pay and high turnover, hundreds of children fall through the cracks. We regularly work over hours with caseloads that are unsafe and too big to manage, so it, it's just an accident waiting to happen and they don't do anything until another child dies. The nurses are demanding a 19% raise, but Woods thinks they'll settle for less. Either way, the government here says it simply can't afford it. Officials say the economy is already in recession and heavy public spending during the pandemic helped blow a $67 billion hole in the UK budget. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak insists the government is doing a lot to help its beleaguered health service, known as the NHS. We're already investing billions more in the NHS. We're already hiring thousands more doctors and nurses. Last year, when everyone else in the public sector had a public sector pay freeze, the nurses received a 3% pay rise. Some of those public service workers who had their wages frozen, they're striking too. On Wednesday, more than 100,000 postal workers walked out. So did rail workers, cutting train operations across the country by 80%. Matthew Lee, a train guard, was picketing in front of London's King's Cross station, which was nearly empty. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day where she's, um, she's not eating dinner to put food on the table at night. All she wants to do is have the money to, to feed her kids. Susan Milner is a professor of European politics who researches labor relations at the University of Bath. She says one reason so many public service workers are walking out now is because of the global financial crisis more than a decade ago. In the wake of that crash, the British government made massive cuts and workers never regained their purchasing power. So in general terms, we are poorer in our income than, say, pre-2008. And Milner says money isn't the only reason the government is resisting union demands. There are political reasons here as well, ideological reasons, I think, for a conservative government that wants to see itself as not giving in to unions. And it, in the conservative leadership contest over the summer, certainly there was a lot of rhetoric about having a hard line on trade unions and strikes. As cars pass the protesting nurses this morning, many honked in support. But there is public opposition to the mass strikes especially because they're coming during the holiday season. Scott Arthur works in a hotel in Newcastle. He's not sympathetic to railway workers like Matthew Lee. A load of rubbish. They've had a lot of taxpayers' money. Margaret Thatcher sorted them all out, and it's a shame she's gone. And now we're back to square one, being held to ransom. Arthur's referring to Britain's Iron Lady, who's credited with crushing trade unions here back in the 1980s. Trade union membership is a lot smaller now. But workers are hoping their collective action can still bring big concessions from the British government. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Today, Oregon announced a nearly $700 million settlement with agrochemical company Monsanto. The state filed a lawsuit in 2018 for Monsanto's alleged role in polluting Oregon land and waterways with toxic compounds. Joining us now is Oregon public broadcasting environment reporter Cassandra Profita. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what is the significance of the settlement for the state of Oregon? So this is Oregon's biggest lawsuit ever. Oregon's attorney general says it's the biggest settlement Monsanto has agreed to pay in any lawsuit over something called polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs. 
Today, you know, Monsanto is best known for making weed killer, but historically, the company manufactured PCBs that went into things like flame retardants, paint, and electrical equipment um, up until about 1977. And then two years after that, the chemical was banned because it's so toxic. But PCBs are very persistent pollutants, and so they're still polluting the ground, the rivers, and the fish in Oregon. Has the state said at this point how it plans to spend the settlement money, this record $700 million? Yeah, so the reason Oregon wants this money is to help pay for the cleanup work of removing PCBs from the environment. It's really expensive, especially when you want to remove it from the bottom of a river. Um, The state actually has to dredge the polluted rivers and then take that polluted material to a hazardous waste disposal site. Um, PCBs are a major contaminant in the state's largest Superfund site at Portland Harbor, and that's going to cost a billion dollars to clean up. So this money wouldn't even cover all of that cost. But removing PCBs from the environment is the best way to prevent it from hurting people. Um, PCBs are classified as a toxic substance, and the federal government says it's probably carcinogenic, so it could cause cancer. OPB and ProPublica recently paid to have salmon tested for contaminants and actually found PCBs in the prized fish that so many people eat, especially in tribal communities. So what are you hearing from state officials there in Oregon about this settlement? Well, Oregon's Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum says these contaminants have been polluting land and waterways for more than 90 years, despite the fact that Monsanto knew that PCBs were toxic as early as 1937. And she says the money's going to help with the state's massive task of cleaning up all the pollution to protect Oregonians. Although it's not enough to completely clean up our state, as a result of today's settlement, we are now in a much better position to do the costly and time-consuming work that must be done to monitor, investigate, clean up, and remediate the damage to Oregon from PCBs. And so what about the company? What is Monsanto saying about this lawsuit and the settlement? So Monsanto is owned by Bayer, which is a multinational pharmaceutical and biotechnology company. And Bayer actually told its shareholders back in August that it was planning to settle this lawsuit, and that would affect the company's profits for this year. The company also put out a statement today that says its agreement with Oregon does not include any admission of wrongdoing. The company's filed a lawsuit of its own against the customers who bought PCBs from Monsanto in order to recover its litigation costs. And the company says that the settlement terms here um, reflect unique circumstances in Oregon's legal system. Um, You know, that said, it's also settled lawsuits over PCBs in the states of Washington, Ohio, Washington, D.C., New Hampshire, and New Mexico. Uh, But Monsanto points out that it did win a case um, over PCBs in Delaware earlier this year. And the company says it plans to defend itself against future cases elsewhere. That's Cassandra Profita with Oregon Public Broadcasting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rain will move in overnight tonight and then get ready for a washout of a Friday. It'll be windy tomorrow, too, with gusts from 35 to 50 miles an hour. Temps in the mid-40s. Saturday looks mostly cloudy after the rain moves out in the morning. It'll be in the low 40s. Marketplace is next. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Registration open for winter classes at newartcenter.org.